Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. We are at episode 120. It is a 7-Eleven day as well, so make sure you get your 7-Eleven uh, Slurpee. 7-Eleven day was always that day you could go to 7-Eleven and get a free Slurpee. Hope they're still doing it. Hopefully inflation hasn't gotten rid of that. Uh, anyway, a lot to consider, especially since we're essentially on the eve of CPI day here. Tomorrow morning at 5.30 a.m., so in about 25 hours, we'll be covering CPI live right here. Remember, the big expectations are we're looking for that 0.3 for CPI month over month and that CPI core number to come down to 3.1%. We'll talk a little bit about uh, some expectations uh, and some potential risk factors that we might have uh, with uh, CPI in a little bit. Uh, then we've got PPI coming up, and that's all going to lead into the Fed for next week. So uh, actually, sorry, uh, that would be two weeks from now. Fed Fed decision day is two weeks from now, not next week. Uh, and uh, we're looking for uh, signs that we're potentially going to get uh, that 25 BP hike here. Uh, in addition to maybe another 25 BP. So we'll see. Uh, then we've got, uh, let's see here. Uh, okay, yep, that, good, that's good. Uh, then uh, a lot of uh, a lot of frustration uh, in the market right now, as uh, it seems like a lot of institutional investors. The more and more I read about what, what they're talking about, it seems like there's a lot of frustration uh, in trying to understand what is actually going on in this market, because it seems as though things that should be making sense. Uh, just aren't, at least uh, for a lot of the bears. Uh, although even some of the bulls are somewhat uh, somewhat confused in terms of exactly where to position. Uh, market futures right now up uh, slightly. Dow up 12 bips, S&P up 17, and NASDAQ 21. A lot of that could change instantly, though, when we get CPI tomorrow, especially if that comes in a little stronger than expected. 10-year, finally under 4% today, sitting at 3.97%. Uh, which is also quite interesting since uh, we've seen that go essentially straight up. Uh, maybe the jobs report is finally biting a little bit and suggesting, okay, we're, we're good here. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we don't need rates to skyrocket as much as uh, uh, some uh, expect. Although even even the bears uh, think that the Fed's already gone too far in terms of rate hikes. It's in fact, uh, because they've gone too far is uh, exactly why they expect a recession. Uh, regarding the five-year break-even, it's finally started to tick back down a little bit. We uh, we started trending up a bit, which is concerning because I'd really like to see that five-year break-even get under that uh, two a uh, two percent level and uh, maybe even trend closer to about 1.6, 1.7, and that's where we could finally get some of those rate cuts getting priced in. Uh, but uh, all we've been doing over the last couple weeks here is really increasing the odds that uh, we're going to get two more rate hikes. Uh, and so I'll show you the charts on both of these uh, in just a moment. We've got the, uh, again, the five-year break-even, big deal, and then the Fed terminal rate expectations. Let's take a look at both of those together on a chart uh, and just see how they've moved. So the movement on the Fed terminal rate has been pretty consistent here. Fed terminal rate, uh, okay, Mr. HDMI, huh? come on, why are you having problems, bruh? There we go, all right, Fed terminal, oh, now I'm frozen, there we go. All right, Fed terminal rate right here, 5.36%. This is down from about that one, uh, or a 5.4 level uh, that we recently hit. 
you could see that terminal rate really skyrocketed after that January data and February data. Here you could see the uh, January hot jobs data and hot market data really started coming out, leading to the skyrocketing of expectations for rates going into the banking crisis. Banking crisis resets those expectations, and then we've slowly started trending back up to uh, 5.36, which 5.36 is almost perfectly aligned with a rate of 5.25 to 5.5. Divide those two in half, add them together, divide them by two, and what do you get? 5.375. So if this level matches 5.375, it means one more rate hike. Uh, if it goes above 5.375, it means potentially two more rate hikes. And under means potentially less than one more rate hike. And, and so as you can see, we're basically right there. Uh, and, and we've really it up uh, in the past uh, few weeks here to, to basically fully price in that next 25 BP. So I think uh, these fears about another 25 BP, it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to get another 25. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's already priced in. It's priced in, bro. <laughs> Camera's right there. <laughs> so uh, then we've got our five-year break even right here. Uh, as you can see, it's massively volatile. But what I really like to do is just zoom in over here on the right. And this is this uptrend I really want to get rid of. I'm tired of seeing this uptrend right here. This uptrend's got to go. And uh, as you can see, what we have here is <laughs> still an uptrend. Yeah, the uptrend is not going away. But uh, it, is, uh, it is finally starting to uh, at least reject a little bit, which is good. Uh, because for a moment there, it just felt like we were just going to go straight up. Uh, so we're on this channel. It's clearly an upward trend channel. The Fed needs to pressure this down. The more this continues to rise, uh, the more, in my opinion, we're going to start seeing a second rate hike uh, potentially signaled by the Fed. Uh, I'm convinced, although they don't clearly say it, I'm convinced that this is pretty much all the Fed needs to look at. But that's too boring. But I mean, think about it. If there were one chart the Fed could look at to guide a monetary policy, I think it's this particular chart. If you want, if you want to see cuts, get that number to 1.6, kind of where we were the last time. Uh, we we started seeing pauses and cuts from the Fed in 2018, ignoring the the craziness of the pandemic here for a moment. Then uh, uh, the more we see this trend down, the more we could see a pause. Uh, and so as you can see. Look at where the pause was. I wanted to write that here. The pause was almost at the bottom of, of this trend, right? If I place it right here, this is where we got pause in the middle of June. And, and so you can see, if we had our pause here, then clearly this actually doesn't even align with pause. This is sort of the hiking territory. You could almost make the argument that if we're in these boxes over here, you're in hike territory, and down here you're in pause territory. And then if you get lower, you're in the cut territory. So again, it's, it's I like to call it the one chart that tells you exactly what the Federal Reserve is up to. I think uh, this confuses folks though, because it's like, it's almost overly simplifying it. I mean, look, I was a big fan of saying, I don't think the Fed's going to hike again in June because it would make the same mistakes of, well, basically what they did uh, back in the 70s where they you know, uh, hike, and they stop, and then they hike again, and they stop. I think all of that is nonsense. You know, I think it's a bad idea. Uh, but looking at this chart, I look and I go, okay, well, crap. <laughs> They're probably going to hike again because of the way the five-year break-even has moved. 
Uh, and that's okay. You know, things change. Uh, data comes in strong, and then the Fed's got to keep doing their work. To some extent, though, it's not necessarily a terrible thing when we get strong data. This is where I still think it's kind of remarkable that people cheer this idea of, yeah, let's get really bad data because that'll make the Fed stop. No, give me strong data and then lay another hike on me. Who cares? Just give me good earnings at the companies that I invest in. Uh, that's what we're looking for. Obviously, we've got the earnings catalyst coming up now. <laughs> that's going to be fun. Uh, but here, uh, another way to look at this, this favorite Fed chart, which I think is so useful, is look at the five-year for a moment. And what we'll do is we'll look at the, uh, and I know it sounds a little confusing, it's the five-year chart, like a view of the chart, of the five-year break-even inflation rate. Okay, good. Now that we have that, here's the, what that actual chart looks like. So let me put this into context. Look at where the pause is. And here, let's make this a little smaller together so we could see this functionally and uh, see where where's that, that cut element again. Anyway, so you get pause. The pause level's right there. Hiking level is right here. And then where's cut and anything above that, obviously. And then where's cutting level? Well, cutting level is your, your Fed pivot level, I like to call it, uh, which would be right about here pivot, and then we'll draw our little line over. We've done this many times before, but it's always worth reiterating just to compare where we need to be. There you go. That is roughly straight. There you go. So uh, that shows you about that 1.6, 1.75-ish range, somewhere right around here. Eh, probably That's probably better right there. Uh, this, this is where we're trying to get to with the pivot level. So when you zoom in, it's obviously easier to view this. But again, I think this right here is a sign of success for the Fed. Whereas over here, you had a sign of panic. This was Q1 of 2022, and this was starting to feel like Paul Volcker. Now people are like, Kevin, why, why did the stock market fall so terribly in 2022? Well, it's because of this single chart. One chart can tell you. And I know, look, I'm not a big fan of saying, oh, one data point is all you need, but that's literally what I'm saying in this. It's like, if, if somebody was blindly dropped into uh, you know, if somebody was an alien and they were allowed to have one piece of data about what the Federal Reserve was doing, it could be literally this chart because that alien would, would, who would understand monetary policy, let's say, yeah, fiat and fake printed money. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's assume they knew about that. They would argue the Fed would probably be pooping their pants in this range right here, which they did. Who remembers that December 2021 Fed meeting where we went through the minutes in January and we're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst report we've ever read from the Fed. It was all over here in panic time. This was panic mode. And that's why we had the stock market lows over here in mid 2022 and towards the end of 2022. It really wasn't until we had this confirmation of a downtrend uh, over here-ish. Uh, I, would, I would probably say that last, that last quarter to the beginning quarter over here, where uh, in hindsight, we start looking and saying, okay, Maybe, maybe this Fed policy is actually working. Maybe we can actually anchor and keep inflation expectations anchored and not get Paul Volckered. Uh, and then, of course, we get, uh, after our tax loss harvesting sales of 2022 in the stock market, you get your recoveries over here. Uh, now it's just a matter of finishing the job, right? Fin finish the job, get this to continue to trend down, and it's somewhat flattened here. Uh, and so either waiting for those rates to bite 
or continuing to hike a bit more is what's going to drive that down into cut realm. My expectation, at least. So we'll see. But again, if I were <laughs> if I were looking at one thing, it'd be that. Uh, and it uh, gives us a little bit of an insight into the latest from the Fed. Uh, now, that also reiterates some of what uh, the Federal Reserve is suggesting. And some of the speakers we've had, a lot of speakers this week from the Federal Reserve. I personally don't really care uh, about all of the various different speakers. A lot of people, they, they send me messages, they're like, oh my gosh, there are going to be so many speakers from the Fed. Uh, that's going to tank the market. I'm like, no, <laughs> you can almost expect what the Fed is going to say. And these are all various individual members just offering their opinion. Ultimately, the only opinion that really matters, and I know this sounds crazy to say, but it's J-Pal. When you get all of these other speakers, unfortunately, their opinions don't matter as much. What matters is the consensus of the Fed, and that's driven by J-Pal. So, uh, look, I mean, just to catch you up, this is some of the stuff we're, we're hearing. Fed officials say higher interest rates are needed to reach 2% inflation goal. And when you consider this stacked up against this chart, yes, higher rates are needed to get that line down. Of course. What do we have here? Three Fed officials on Monday said policymakers will need to raise rates further this year to be bring inflation back to the central bank's target. Still have a, uh, well, Michael Barr here, uh, who's on the, uh, who's the Federal Reserve Vice Chair for Supervision told a bipartisan policy center meeting on Monday, quote, I would say we're close, but we still have a bit of work to do. A bit sort of implying one or two hikes. You've got a similar argument over here from Mary Daly, suggesting we likely need a couple more rate hikes to get to 2%. And here's another one where she says, in order to ensure that inflation is on a sustainable and timely path, Back to 2%. My view is that the funds rate will need to move up somewhat further from the current level and hold there for a while as we accumulate more information on how the economy is evolving. San Francisco's Fed chief says she will uh, she is starting to see signs of the economy slowing and added that supply and demand is coming into better balance. This is good. Of course, obviously, the risk is, again, going too far. BLS uh, jobs data, of course, we saw well above the levels consistent with 2% inflation. That is the pay gains. Pay gains, remember, came in at 0.4%, which is annualized out to 4.8%. You know, what's funny is when, when I talk about annualizing, I talk about multiplying by 12. It's very simple. As soon as you start talking about annualizing numbers for Tesla, all the Tesla bulls start freaking out and going, you can't multiply by 12 to annualize. You have to compound the growth. Oh, look up the definition of annualizing. Oh, my God. Anyway, <clears throat> so Rafael Bostic said that while the rate of inflation is too high, policymakers can be patient for now amid evidence of an economic slowdown, a stance at odds with many of his colleagues. So here you've got one of your doves. It's kind of like, I don't know, man, we should all pause. And then everybody else is like, bro, we only use one chart. Just look at the five-year break-even, man. It's still got to come down more. And then Bostic is like, but bro... You know, the economy's really slowing. Just wait and it'll come down. Look, the good thing is, and it's very actually good, inflation expectations are uh, either, you could say, very anchored or trending down even more. There was uh, a New York Fed inflation expectations piece that came out. And uh, this is different from the University of Michigan survey. It's just another version of this. And uh, Reuters published a piece on exactly that. Let's take a look at it. 
Americans said in June, okay, here we go. Come on, Reuters with the ads. Oh my gosh, okay, I'm gonna give us huge ads here. Oh, that'd be a perfect place for me to remind you that on July 25th, we'll have a very large price increase for the courses on building your wealth. Uh, we are very, very excited to continue to deliver awesome content and uh, fundamental research, investment ideas, and uh, insights. So uh, check those out, linked down below, whether it's stocks or real estate. Uh, or uh, property management, or making more money and getting stuff done faster, featuring AI. Check out those links down below. So here you go, Reuters. Americans said in June they were expecting the weakest near-term inflation gains in just over two years, while continuing to mark up the expected path of home price increases. Yes. The New York Fed survey of consumer expectations for June uh, saw inflation levels rising by 3.8% a year from now, and that is down from the 4.1 expectation in May. This is very good. You want to see anchored inflation expectations and downtrending expectations. This was the weakest read since April of 2021. That's fantastic. A three percentage point drop from the peak a year ago. So then you've got inflation outlook at longer horizons, however, was mixed. Uh, this would be your <clears throat> usually your three to five year outlook. Yep, three year holding steady at 3%, but rising to 3% five years out from the May 2.7 reading. Now these levels tend to be relatively in flux. And this article is a little misleading in that inflation expectations here in the longer run are okay to technically sit at 3% and still have a 2% target. Usually you would expect inflation expectations slightly higher than what inflation is actually targeted at. I know that sounds weird, but the inflation expectation for about the 10 years prior to COVID were 2.8%. So the more we float around 2.8, you know, you get a little bit above, a little bit below, the better. And we'd like to see that steady. Uh, of course, if we can get them to trend down a little bit, that's where we start building in cuts. Now, it probably doesn't take or won't take much for this to rapidly fall in the event that something does break. And the way something could break or the way to visualize something breaking is just to zoom into the banking crisis. Because if you take this and you kind of just put something right here like, oops, put a little oopsie doopsie right here, you could see this plummet in inflation expectations could happen very, very quickly. And this is where you've got banking failures really driving down. Uh, fears or, or increasing fears that we're going to have substantial economic problems. Uh, so you get this sort of oopsie doopsies. So anyway, this gives you a little catch up on inflation expectations and what some of the latest are. Again, we have been channeling up on these five-year break-even inflation rates, uh, not to any kind of concerning level, but certainly a level at least that suggests yeah, Fed's probably got a little bit more to do. You could really see that here. That uptrend's really got to settle down and stop. So it gives you some thoughts on inflation expectations. Again, good news from Reuters. Uh, reasonable expectations here, mostly already priced in. Most of economic activity or market activity now should probably focus on, uh, of course, I mean, inline expectations for CPI reports. But after that, it's just earnings, 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 earnings. And so CPI, of course, tomorrow. So we'll be paying attention to that. All right, let's listen in over here to CNBC for a moment. 
you won't see any, you know, any mean stuff. That the, the, the old Twitter, no Babylon <laughs> B, no, no, way, COVID, totally no vaccine information, no laptop, none of the stuff that 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 group of people wanted to see was there. And now it's going to be like that again on Thread, so they can embrace that as a home instead of all the the you know unsettling stuff to that group of people. Joe, Joe I, I, I'm actually not going to discount what you're saying, except to say that the, a big part of why mainstream media, I think, or media, I think one of the main reasons we are talking about this right now is that 100 million plus users. That's not why most of those people have gone there. I think a lot of the coverage, or at least of the, the media interest in threads now in terms of the coverage, is coming because of the massive adoption. Those are just numbers you can't ignore. I mean, 100 million people everybody plus. Everybody already had Instagram. Well, we'll it's see. Insane. Other people think it's going to be like, how, how, do you still have your parlor account? I, I do probably just have a parlor account somewhere. <laughs> did, you, did you have a parlor account? I did. And I have a Truth Social account, too. But I will tell you, neither of those platforms, even in, at their height, got anywhere close to what no, threats no, I'm, Obviously not. They weren't Mark Zuckerberg and they weren't Instagram. But you know, we'll see that, as people say, at the end of the day, nobody ever talks about the beginning of the day. But at the end of the day, we'll see whether, <laughs> uh, you know, whether this is Clubhouse or whether it's a Twitter killer. We'll see. Clubhouse. Oh, man. Who remembers Clubhouse? I remember it was so peak when Elon popped into there. And called Vlad the Impaler of Stocks. That was P Clubhouse right there. Like Twitter, and then Twitter basically took the idea, if you think about it. <laughs> now got competition. He, he's owned this thing for whatever eight what? months starts, without start any competition. We gotta go, guys. To start censoring things? You, that's what you want from Elon again? That's not, I'm not talking about censorship, Joe. Okay. You're bringing that up. Okay. It's not me. To All be right. continued. Dan, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, coming up, America's top state uh, for business revealed. Scott Conis. I love how you get somebody in the background. Guys, we got to go. Shut up. Stop talking about censorship. <laughs> oh, man. By the way, uh, you had a judicial uh, ruling on the uh, the stay request. Let me get that. Uh, Biden. Uh, let's pull it up here. I have this here. Biden stay request censorship. Oh yeah, there it is. Uh, yep. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> okay, one second. Oh, I slept on my neck poorly <laughs> yesterday and it's just like, oh, big pain in the neck. All right, hold on, this is interesting. Um. Okay, so you might already remember that uh, Joe Biden got slammed by a judge just to catch you up to speed. Basically, a judge is like, look, the government, the FBI, the Biden administration, and almost all levels of government are uh, trying to get involved in social media way too much. Way too many requests for censorship to YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and other companies demanding the removal of content that they disagree with, whether it's information about the economy, information about gas prices, stuff Tucker Carlson is saying, or whatever, vaccine information, doesn't matter. All of this stuff led the judge to argue that we have seen the largest amount of censorship potentially ever in the history of government and it's getting worse and not better. And these are really concerning, almost George Orwellian 1984 government overreaches because it, it, it's somewhat 
what it is is a reference to the thought police where it's like, you're not even allowed to think thoughts that don't align with what we think because if you do, we'll censor you. Not great. Uh, so anyway, uh, the uh, Biden administration immediately uh, filed an appeal and requested a stay, which is basically a way of saying, look, like, let us keep censoring people and businesses or whatever and social media while we work this out in court. So we'll work it out in court, but we want to stay in the meantime so we can keep doing our censoring, you know, our, our you know, controlled information control processes or whatever. And uh, so what did we end up getting? Well, yesterday we got a ruling on that stay. Judge refuses to put on hold the order limiting the Biden administration's uh, contact with social media companies. Federal judge in Louisiana refused Monday to put a temporary hold on its own order limiting Biden administration official contacts with social media companies. Biden administration officials, uh, uh, sorry, attorneys, had asked the uh, district judge to stay his own order, which was issued last Tuesday. That was on July 4th, by the way. Pretty timely ruling. While they pursue an appeal, that order came in a lawsuit filed by Republican attorneys general uh, in Louisiana, Missouri, as well as conservative website owner, blah, 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 four critics of the government. Okay, fine. The lawsuit claimed the administration in effort or in effect censored free speech by using threats of regulatory action or protection while pressuring companies to remove what it deemed as misinformation. Again, had to do with election fraud, COVID, the economy, gas prices, whatever. We went through the whole lawsuit and it's pretty, the allegations are pretty remarkable. And even the judge says, look, if this is true, this is insane. Uh, and obviously the expectation is that it mostly seems to be true. We'll see, of course, as it all plays out. But anyway, uh, so basically the judge says that staying censorship could, quote, cause grave harm uh, and uh, basically prevent uh, the government from engaging in lawful conduct, in other words... <laughs> like, no, we're not going to let you continue censoring. Just do your jobs and let people say what they want on the internet. You know, there is a thing called the First Amendment. <clears throat> yeah, here you have their reference to the same thing with the Ministry of Truth. I actually thought it was a great reference. I feel like most people like 1984 as a perfect example of what you don't want your government to turn into. Uh, and, uh, and, and so ultimately here, uh, even though the Biden administration requested permission to keep censoring, the judge is like, dude, I just ruled against you. You're asking me to, like, rule against myself? It's not going to happen. <laughs> so very expected, dare I say, but uh, also a powerful shutdown here. And uh, will have big implications as this uh, this case evolves. So something I'm going to be paying attention to. Another thing I'll be paying attention to is getting life insurance in as little as five minutes, which you can get by going to metkevin.com slash life. And you can Apple or Android pay for it. It's simple. Metkevin.com slash life, Apple Pay. <laughs> Takes as little as five minutes to sign up. It's a little longer than what I just exemplified. But anyway, pay promotion, check it out. Great life insurance company. All right, let's move on. What do we have over here? Infrastructure, and upon closing, Berkshire uh, Hathaway Energy would own 75% of uh, <clears throat> Cove Point. Now let's get over to Dom Chu with <laughs> Berkshire's always buying stuff. I think it's awesome. I, I think that should be the goal of any entrepreneur or business owner is create like a Berkshire light. <laughs> Around 25,000 shares of volume. 
The Diet Berkshire, that's it. From scotch tape to post-it notes to industrial filters is getting upgraded to a neutral from a prior underperform at Bank of America. They keep their $110 price target. They cited things like more clarity around litigation risks, also an underappreciated restructuring story, and the upcoming spinoff of its healthcare unit unlocking value for shareholders. So 3M shares, not great so far this year, but up 1.5% pre-market. Yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise that a staple like 3M is suffering this year. I mean, we've been complaining about that all the time here. Looking at some comments here, uh, Max, good good point out here about uh, this talk about ship revenue falling potentially 9%. One of the things that we, we have to remember when it comes to chips is they're still in a rut compared to 2021. Like, you are still seeing an earnings recession in chips. It's really just thanks to artificial intelligence that people are like, yes, we're very excited about the potential for positive uh, earnings again at these companies. Uh, but yeah, uh, the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal here reiterating that chip revenues are expected to decline 9% year over year. Uh, and uh, your competitors for some of uh, the AI software that NVIDIA uses would be your Intel and your AMD, although uh, <laughs> NVIDIA's got a pretty dang strong moat around some of their, you know, their CUDA software, for example. Uh, the Ultimately, projections for the AI computing semiconductors market is projected to be somewhere around 125 billion by, tw 100, or by 2027, which is remarkable. And we'll see where it goes, but you know, I, I wonder, let's look at the trends for artificial intelligence. Now let's try to analyze some potential risk here. Let's go, uh, our, let's just type in artificial intelligence. And let's see what we get if we do a little searchy doodle on that. And let's do the last 12 months. Yeah, it's kind of what you would expect. So you get this sort of pop off over here during the GPT era, I like to call it, where everybody's talking about AI. I really worry that there's this risk that a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, GPT's cool and all. Okay, great. And, and, and people don't actually apply the functional portions of artificial intelligence to their life. And I actually think that creates a dual risk factor. Uh, one risk factor is obviously for chip companies because you get this potential flash in the pan of, of AI ordering, but until you get to the next iteration of AI growth, you potentially don't have this, you know, massive growth that everybody's expecting for chips beyond just one or two quarters. So in other words, you could have a great Q2 for NVIDIA, but end up with a poor forecast because all of a sudden you just see AI usage go, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Okay, what was I doing? <laughs> right? That, this is not to say I'm an AI bear. Long term, I'm definitely not an AI bear. But I do have real and legitimate concerns that in the short term, we might be a little bubbly on the artificial intelligence. Uh, so I'm a little bit more inclined to focus on uh, solar <laughs> and things that I think are going to be the next trajectory. Uh, you know, I've been talking up Enphase like crazy around this 160 to 180 trading range that it's been. And uh, what we just talked about in the Course Member Live is insane. Uh, just yet, if you didn't watch it, watch yesterday's Course Member Live, but what we discovered is insane. So check that out. Uh, yesterday's Course Member Live, really, really important. Uh, anyway, so uh, it could be very profitable, let's just say. But anyway, when we look at uh, artificial intelligence, and just staying on topic here, I think the number one risk is chip revenue. Again, surge Q2, 
and then something maybe slightly above trend for 3-4, but nowhere near this compounded growth that people are so excited about. Uh, and that makes me concerned. I'll show that to you mathematically. I'll quickly say the concern, the second concern, and then show you the math. So the second concern is that, look, like 60% of people in surveys have heard about your, you know, chat GPT and stuff like that, but only 10% of people have actually tried it. And then of that, it's arguable that maybe only 10% of people actually use uh, AI tools on a daily basis. To me, scary. I use, you know, specific tools and incorporate them into our business and workflows on a daily basis. This is the stuff we talk about, the how to make more money and get SH9T done faster. And it's phenomenal. If, if you know what to do with it, it's really, really powerful. And so I highly encourage you, if you, if you want to get a head start, start at zero, check out this. Uh, even, even if you're not at zero and you want to you want to see how I'm applying it as an entrepreneur or a business owner or whatever, that's useful. But again, I, I want you to see my concern when it comes to chips right now. Oh, that's the wrong button. Uh, it's right here. So here here's what you have people saying. So you have people going, all right, we've got NVIDIA, which raised their chip forecast to $7 billion. And so what people think is that NVIDIA is basically going to look something like, like this in the future, where you basically just get this $7 billion across, and then you multi, you know, you sum this up, you've got $28 billion of chip revenue. And then what folks are looking at is, well, let's grow that. If this is, you know, year one of AI, then people are trying to grow this by, you know, a 50% clip or whatever for the next five years or something crazy. And so you go in here, take this number, multiply it by 50%. And so really you're suggesting that server revenue, just, just the AI portion, like AI server data center revenue could be somewhere close to $100 billion. Well, the expectation is that uh, NVIDIA uh, would, would basically bring about 50% of that to the bottom line. That's because their margins are really incredible, first of all. Their margins are somewhere around 70%, and then you know put in about 15 to 20% for OPEX. What do you end up getting? You get about 50 bucks, right? So assume by year five, which would be uh, 2023, four, five, six. By 2026, an extra 50 billies is, is what folks are you know sort of trying to forecast here another 50 billies uh, for net income for the company. So 50 billies of net income for 2026. And you look at net income expectations right now from Wall Street. Right now, the Wall Street expectation is 30.25 for NVIDIA. It's worth noting. So this would be about 50 billion just from data, right? Some folks are going really bullish on this direction. The Wall Street expectation right now is that total NVIDIA uh, net income would be somewhere around 30.25 billion by 2026. So you can see how this disconnect is, first of all, massive, especially since data center revenue is just one portion of NVIDIA's revenue. But I think there's a real risk to this because what if you don't actually get this massive growth and you actually end up with more of something like, you know, a 10%, right? You go to a 10% growth, uh, now, now you're starting to get, you're still getting pretty rich growing on top of that 28 bill. And so this is where first problem is assuming that NVIDIA's growth rate goes crazy continually. Second problem is assuming growth at all 
on top of this 28 bill potentially of server rep, because what if that 28 bill is even wrong? What if we were supposed to be at, let's say, what, 4.8 or whatever of, of server rev up here? What if we go back to that? You know, you actually just end up going back to four, uh, 5 billy or whatever of server rev. All of these numbers end up getting canned, especially with slower growth rates. So the big question is, if you have a flash in the pan, you're, you're really probably unlikely to exceed uh, expectations for NVIDIA server revenue uh, and total net income in the longer term. So the question is, okay, well, how functional are these AI tools for industries and how much demand for NVIDIA server products uh, is that going to lead to? Well, what I like to do is look at uh, H100 server pricing and uh, you could kind of just Google this. Uh, just type in, you know, something like H100 server pricing and uh, look at how it's changing over time. You kind of have to pay attention to it over time. So let me see here. There was a good website that we had the other day and it might take me a little second to find it, but I want to I want to go through this again. But oh, yeah, here it was this one. There we go. This is the website that I keep seeing advertising and I keep seeing them advertise, frankly, at lower and lower levels. So now they're advertising at a buck 99 per hour to use H100 chips. And as much as I'm bullish you know, on NVIDIA overall, I, I am concerned that if you start seeing the industry lower and lower costs, basically you see deflation in the H100 costs per hour, then it becomes less profitable for you to get into the H100 business. And so you squeeze competition out, uh, well, because there's so much of it, and, and then you lead to less new demand for H100s. And again, that NVIDIA server demand becomes a flash in the pan. That's my concern. Let, let me rephrase that in a little bit of what I think will be a better way. So one thing that I think you could do to watch NVIDIA is watch the pricing of the H100 servers, specifically because you're gonna go through this phase. And here's kind of visually what that phase looks like. So imagine this. Imagine right now, I'm gonna make up these numbers. Let's say you have 10 servers, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, you get 50 servers, or, or you don't know call it 200 servers worth of demand. So all of a sudden, GPT releases, and then all of a sudden, you get 200 servers worth of demand. And uh, that's your sort of GPT moment here. And then everybody's like, oh my gosh, we need an H100. So you get all these companies coming out buying H100 server chips. And everybody's like, give me, give me all the chips I can get my hands on. Now all of a sudden, the market creates a marketplace where there are 200 servers in this example here. But then all of a sudden, demand goes to 20 servers. So in other words, demand is still up from 10, substantially. It's still double in this example. But it's not what it was at the GPT moment. So who is this? Well, this is probably going to be your your research and your corporate side of uh, of artificial intelligence use. We're on a daily basis, you know, whether it's customer service or researchers, uh, medical, healthcare, hospitals, whatever. Maybe they're incorporating some levels of artificial intelligence more so now than they were. Maybe. And so, what do you get? You get this bump of AI usage around the GPT moment, but it's nowhere near that peak that everybody's building for. And so my take in this example is in this case, 
if let's say you're charging, you know, $10 an hour for a server over here, then over here you're charging $100 an hour and that motivates everybody to get into the industry, kind of like Bitcoin mining, when Bitcoin's 69,000, everybody wants to start Bitcoin mining. And then what happens? You get a crash because everybody starts Bitcoin mining, <laughs> you know, and, and so your profitability goes way down. And now all of a sudden, what? Everybody's like, let's just charge $2 an hour for our server. So even though usage is up in this example, you actually have server costs go down. When server costs go down, it's less profitable to get into the server business. When it's less profitable to get into the server business, less people buy H100s, which is exactly in a, in a different manner. And I, I know I'm not being super precise with these numbers. I'm just more broadly kind of explaining here where the problem is. But it's exactly why when we look at a spreadsheet like this, there's this big flash in the pan risk of everybody buys massive earnings and all of a sudden people are like, all right, like now we've overbuilt the infrastructure. So I like watching the H100 pricing and just seeing who's who's offering the lowest pricing <laughs> and how is that pricing changing over time uh, for the H100 data centers. And of course, over time, the chips will evolve too. We'll use different chips, uh, but uh, you know, just do H100 uh, server rental or whatever. And it seems to be that market right now is around that sort of buck 99. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're, you're going to start getting lower and lower numbers, especially since not everybody has to use an H100. You could use an A100, which is about 20% cheaper. But you could go even crazier lower. You go into some of the RTX, the, the, the older RTXs, and you're getting these things for like 30, 40, 50 cents uh, an hour. So, anyway, pay attention to pricing. I think it's pretty useful, especially since a lot of folks who want to use these products don't necessarily have to build their own architecture out. They could just use cloud compute. You know, we were looking at, what was it? We were looking in the course member live stream yesterday. We were looking at IonQ and uh, we're like, you know, there's supposed to be this this quantum computing company that uh, that that is a perfect quantum investment for people wanting to get quantum computing exposure. But I'm looking at it and I'm like, in their actual annual report, they're like, yeah, we're going to manufacture quantum computers or we'll just use Google Cloud quantum computing services. And I'm like, okay, so you're not necessarily going to manufacture quantum computers. You're just going to use the cloud, which then everybody has access to, which means there is no IP beyond whatever software you're writing. And it's like, yeah, exactly. So it's almost like democratizing quantum computing or democratizing AI, <laughs> like using the Vlad line. It's like everybody's gonna have access to the same crap. It's just once the infrastructure is built, what do you do with it that matters? Uh, but I do think there is a limit to that infrastructure building. There'll be growth, don't get me wrong, but there's definitely a limit. And so I think some of the, the uh, crazy high projections uh, you know, which, which we, you know, we've run before on the channel too. We're looking at it like, wow, okay, you know, this is kind of what some people are thinking. And there's some real risks to them. So it is keeping me somewhat, should I say, tempered on something like an NVIDIA. I'm, I'm not looking at it going, I got to be all in on this company. Because I do worry that there are these uh, expectations that that sort of growth lasts forever. And we forget that, you know, once you build the infrastructure, <laughs> you don't necessarily need to. Uh, keep going at that same kind of growth pace when you get these sort of moments of excitement. Anyway, 
Just my thesis, okay? Uh, Car for Coins says, NVIDIA always has a better, stronger video card in the pipeline, though. This is true. But remember this. Even though you keep making new, faster, better chips, and this is fine, this is true, you could still do a lot with the older chips. And the older chips get very, very inexpensive on a cost per hour basis. I mean, there are chips out there you can rent for 10 bucks an hour uh, on, on uh, you know, for servers. And they're very capable chips. That's the problem we forget is a lot of stuff you don't necessarily need the best chipsets for. Like, let me put it this way. I'll give you an example. Uh, if, if we are going to train our own artificial intelligence model like we do uh, for, for finding deals in real estate, we can choose to train our data set on a really, really fast server and get our work done, you know, in, in a day or get it done in five days. And the one day service is going to take us, I don't know, five times the cost. And you look at it and go, okay, well, for waiting an extra four days, is it worth five times the cost? And the answer is no. You know, it's not like this is a huge rush. <laughs> so, uh, so in that case, it's like, sure, just give us the older stuff. We'll use the older stuff. And when we need faster stuff, you have access to it. And that I think is so interesting is that you can kind of use the older stuff when you need it. And if you need something very quickly, you can use the newer stuff. And that, that on and off is kind of neat as well. But it, just because there's always new stuff in the pipeline doesn't mean we have to use all the newer stuff at the expensive rates. And I do think that is going to put some limit, that realization. It's like Not everybody needs the latest and greatest. Uh, because again, it's just a time thing. Uh, you know, rather than a capability issue. You know, it'd be one thing if it was like, you can only do AI on these chips. But if you can create artificial intelligence software and, and train language learning models on old chips, it just takes a little longer. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to replace everything, right? Anyway, this is just some things to think about. Uh, and so they're, they're definitely top of mind for me. And I know this is more sort of just broad level concern and this isn't to say that I'm bearish at all on chips. It is just to say that probably uh, there, there, there is some limit to that optimism we could really see. Uh, and uh, considering those limits is very, very important. Okay, good. What else do we have? So let's see here. Let's make a little note of that. Okay, we'll call that uh, the limits, the AI limits. All right. Okay. So let's see here. CNBC is being boring. Let's go see what Doomberg is up to. It is 522. And then we've got some research pieces to cover as well. We do want to take a peek here to see. Is, oh, Doomberg doesn't want to come on today? Well, that's unfortunate. All right. Whatever. We'll go right into research then. So, uh, okay, I'm going to take a sip of coffee and we're going to get research. Ah, uh, yes, coffee. All right. So, next thing we're going to cover is, oh, this was interest. This was really interesting. Let's hit this. This is such a great piece. 
Alright, hold on a sec. Mm -hmm. Okay. I discovered this really remarkable piece on Taiwan that I've got to share with you because it is kind of scary. And I didn't think about this. But I've regularly been one of those folks here on the channel, just full transparently, fully transparent, that's been thinking, I don't think China is going to invade Taiwan because their economy is in the doldrums. They're talking about more stimulus now. Finally, yesterday, they're signaling more stimulus. Everybody's like, please, China, stimulate. We're going to turn it to Japan. People are freaking out about the Chinese economy. And there's some people that are like, buy the dip, this is it. And then there are other people like, no, they're going to turn into Japan. All the smart people leave. All the rich people leave. You know, it, it, it's a problem. Stay away from China. So you, you have a lot of noise around China. And all this noise around China, especially the economic problems, have left me somewhat convinced that China would not be so stupid to invade Taiwan. As much as China's, uh, uh, you know, policy is that they really want to turn Taiwan into like, a Macau or a Hong Kong, which are uh, CCP-controlled but autonomous regions. So it's kind of like, you're your own place, but we still own you. <laughs> so what's this piece that I just discovered that potentially throws this idea on its head that China won't try something really aggressive with Taiwan? Well, it's this. It's that... It's a Wall Street Journal piece discussing that Taiwan's biggest national security threat is not actually an invasion of Taiwan. It's actually that 97% of its energy is transported to Taiwan rather than created on the island of Taiwan. Now, that's a little scary. Why is that scary? Well, it's scary because China has regularly been thought uh, to desire blockading access to Taiwan. Uh, and the way you could do that is if you just look at the map. Because you've got China right here, Taiwan right here. If China blockades not just the Strait of Taiwan, but potentially all the way around Taiwan, notice the more populous era or side, by the way, is on the Chinese side, then what happens? Taiwan's screwed really quickly. By the way, Taiwan's semiconductors, according to this Wall Street Journal piece, uses somewhere around 6% of the entire nation of, of Taiwan's energy. All of it. 6% goes to Taiwan Semiconductors. It just shows you how much they're manufacturing chips over there, which is kind of remarkable. There are your NVIDIA chips, for example. But look at this piece, because this piece was remarkable. So uh, pointing out some of the best, they rely on sea shipments for 97% of their energy. Taiwan has been slow to expand their renewable energies, especially wind and solar, on the island itself. Uh... Defensive analysts now think Beijing lacks the capacity to launch an outright invasion. Instead, they're more likely to attempt a selective blockade or quarantine, squeezing rather than flattening Taiwan into submission. In other words, China could basically win Taiwan 
just by circling Taiwan, cutting off the flow of energy, and you've got days of energy left, and then you're screwed. We'll talk about exactly how many days in just a moment. But I want you to remember to mark July 25th, two weeks from today, on your calendar for the next expiration and larger price increase. We're going with a larger price increase this time for the programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below. Mostly because continue to add more value in there and the amount of feedback we're getting from all of you in email or in posts is phenomenal. Uh, thank you so much to all of those of you supporting the value that we've got in the courses. It motivates me to keep bringing new content to everyone. So super excited. Make sure to join, check out the links down below to get lifetime access to the new content that we add, the fundamental analysis, the trade ideas, the stock ideas, the real estate ideas, everything uh, with me in person every day the market is open in our private course member live streams. Check that out, link down below, as well as all the lectures. So uh, what else do we have here? We have, while total energy self-sufficiency is out of reach, analysts say mitigating some vulnerabilities and the potential in the case of a quarantine could help buy time. But even still, you're basically screwed if you end up having China just circle Taiwan and cutting off their energy. Uh, Taiwan uh, right now, e even if they were able to run on just a quarter of its energy imports for just critical infrastructure wouldn't last very long. Uh, in fact, the length of time they would last, that's what I would like to find right now. Here it is. Here's how long they might last. They only have two terminals capable of collectively storing less than just two weeks worth of natural gas, eight days worth of air conditioning uh, uh, in, a, in a summer month. So in other words, you've got about enough natural gas for two weeks for the electricity on uh, for electricity on the island or eight days so you know for what is that six days less in the summer when everybody's cranking the ac i know we don't have naturally natural gas powered acs but that's how we generate the electricity to get ac right but anyway uh you you have very limited time before taiwan basically runs out of energy that means the lights go off that means uh infrastructure turns off street lights turn off chaos, right? Computers turn off, internet turns off, everything's bad. It's actually a very potentially easy way for China to just crush Taiwan, uh, which is kind of scary. At the same time, you have politics that are sandbagging energy independence, whether it's nuclear power or more solar and wind or new natural gas plants, which some folks are arguing that it's actually the Chinese Communist Party that's planting uh, you know, protesters or your Chinese-backed uh, parties and politicians arguing, no, 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 we don't want more natural gas because that's bad for the environment. Meanwhile, China knows what they're really trying to do is just sandbag Taiwan and make them even more vulnerable. Kind of an interesting allegation. Somewhat makes sense. But, uh, you know, they're also pulling off the same kind of, in my opinion, stupidity that Germany pulled off which was, let's close our nuclear reactors, which is what Germany did. And now Germany imports a ton of their electricity from France, which, guess what, makes it with nuclear power. Then you've got the uh, current, you know, head of the country basically saying, yeah, you know what, in 2016, what what they say? They said, we're going to phase out nuclear power by 2025 because why not be more at risk of getting cut off from China. And why not use more natural gas when we could be using less? But no, it's not politically popular to build new nuclear power plants because the old ones sucked. 
That's basically what's happening. You're looking at nuclear power plants from like the 60s and 70s that had problems, whether it's Fukushima or otherwise. And rather than rebuilding modern ones that are substantially safer, let's just shut them all down. It's, it's honestly like so stupid. Oh yeah, here's the part about TSM using 6% of Taiwan's total energy consumption. That energy consumption surged up 34% in 2020 and 2022, or between that time frame. Kind of wild. Uh, but point being, this, this definitely makes you want to look at the whole China-Taiwan thing in a little bit of a different light. Because if you're thinking China, need, which I originally thought too before I saw this, I'm like, wow, I mean, if China's going to invade Taiwan, they're, they're going to need, you know, well, first of all, they're, they're going to be sandbagging their economy because it's going to take a large, like, Herculean, Herculean effort to actually pull it off to invade Taiwan, especially when you've got countries like the United States suggesting, we'll defend Taiwan at all costs, kind of like what we're doing in Ukraine. Well, you got a problem. But you don't even have to do that. You don't even have to shoot anybody. No weapons. No war. All you have to do is stop the flow of natural gas. And they're screwed. And then flick a finger, you know, snap a finger. The existing politicians, as soon as the uh, internet and power turns off, all the existing politicians get voted out. The Chinese-backed ones come in. You have regime change instantaneously. They turn the power back on. Everybody's like, yay, the power's back on. The new politicians rock. We're Chinese now. Woohoo! I mean, I'm obviously substantially oversimplifying here. But I, <laughs> I guess the point is, I never thought about it that way. And I wanted to share it with you because I, it makes me think, wow, that's actually a whole lot more likely uh, than, uh, than we originally thought it could be. Because again, China could pull it off without destroying their economy. All right. What else? Why can't we all just get along? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yep. I don't think it's that surprising considering Taiwan's size, says Max. Yeah, that's that's very true. All right. What's this talk about Nick T posting on threads? Gross. Oh, threads. Let's see what he has. And what, he didn't post it on Twitter or something? Threads. No, oops, I'm supposed to type Nick T. Nick T. See if he pops up. No, Tiaramos. Let's see if he posts on Twitter. <laughs> Find Nick T. The hunt for Nick T is on. All right, there we go. Spell his name right. Okay. So let's see if he posts the same stuff. Oh, he's just retweeting the last mile article from the Wall Street Journal. Okay, yeah, we saw that. But I'm pretty sure he also posted that on Twitter, no? Usually people just post the same thing. Oh, yeah, it's the same article. It's the same stuff. All right, yeah, that's, that's no fun. So let's just look at the Twitter version. Let's see what the latest is from our boy Nick T over here. Oh, Nick T, what do you got? Bank capital rules are about to get toughened up per the upcoming Fed proposal. Yeah, I am not the biggest fan of looking at banks right now. Not just because of uh, what Nick T is saying here about new capital rules coming, but also 
Also, 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 look at this here. Morgan Stanley talked about some real banking risks. And the big banking risk that they're talking about is this idea that even though bank, the banking system may be stabilizing, what you actually have is people moving to higher yields much faster than expected. It used to be considered that most people who have money deposited at banks are what are known as sleepy depositors. That is, they have their money there and they don't actively move their money around as interest rates change. So, you know, interest rates go from 1% to 2%. Nobody's actively running around trying to get that higher yield super quickly, at least not en masse. Of course, there are some people who are always doing that, but that's more of your fringe, that most deposits were deemed to be sleepy and they wouldn't really move their money around. That's good for banks because it means they make more money, right? Your money's sitting there earning nothing, and when rates are 5%, banks make lots of money in, in interest. Whereas now, what Morgan Stanley is saying is that we might actually be seeing significant headwinds to earnings because of a much quicker transition uh, to interest-bearing accounts where the depositors are basically taking more yield and it's happening way faster than expected. You see that right here in the middle. And they talk about how this faster migration away from non-interest bearing accounts remains the biggest downside to banks. And that every additional 5% decrease in net interest uh, bearing accounts hits EPS by about 9%. So you almost have a two to one impact where for every dollar that goes out of a non-interest bearing account, you're losing two in, in earnings, roughly. Uh, it's, that's not exactly correct, but percentage-wise, that's roughly what it feels like. Uh, so that's a big risk when it comes to banking. So I think Nick T, so this is a Morgan Stanley piece that reiterates that, you know, for me at least, banking stocks, probably not the favorite to look at. But what else is Nick T saying? So uh, this right here, shows he's just essentially tweeting some highlights about uh, your your supervisor, your VP over there at the Fed, Mr. Barr, not to be confused with that, you know, the, the election bar. But anyway, uh, we'll, we'll recommend new capital rules to cover banks uh, down to $100 billion in assets. That's down from 250 bill. You know, the whole Silicon Valley bank crisis is uh, saying, hey, you know, we don't have capital rules under 250 bill. We're fine. We're not important. And then sure enough, we end up having to bail out these banks that are somewhere between 100 to $200 billion in size because they just skirted by the regulation you had previously. Now, of course, you have pretty much every banker calling up their congressman or woman begging Jerome Powell not to issue new capital rules, but we all know it's coming because the Fed was blindsided uh, by the banking crisis. So anyway, uh, yeah, not going to have that happen again. Uh, then what else does Nick T say here? Well, he suggests that new research from economist Michael Kiley suggests that data in 2022 and early 23 for core CPI has been consistent with models showing greater persistence. Updating forecasts from these models suggest core CPI inflation is likely to remain above 3.5% through 2024. And that's not great. Uh, because that would be higher than forecast. Again, that means higher rates for longer. You can see that right here. Uh, based on their models, it, it, essentially, it is potentially true that core inflation remains above 3.5% through 2024. Jerome Powell right now suggests 
hey, you know, we think inflation will come down by 2025. But does that mean we're going to go from 3.5 at the end of 2024 to quickly to 2%? Or, you know, is total inflation going to get to 2%? How much does core need to be at 2%? You know, your services, your financial services, your uh, medical services, your haircut, your uh, travel services, flights, uh, whatever, pilots, you name it. That's not great. It's a little bit potentially problematic. Uh, of But what it really signals is higher for longer. And higher for longer is, okay, well, is that going to hurt earnings more? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Uh, earnings get hurt when uh, your cost of capital goes up. Businesses are really the ones that get hit very hard, as well as uh, poor individuals heavily relying on credit cards, when, when interest rates go up. But the question is, is the stock market going to care more about slightly lower earnings or a deep, dark recession? And I still think a lot of people have money on the sidelines because they say, inverted yield curve, deep, dark recession coming. Uh, not great. So here's another interesting piece. And it's the Wall Street Journal piece on the last mile of the inflation fight. I thought this was an interesting one. Let's go through it together, though. So here's that piece tweeted out by Nick T. There's good news on inflation in store for Americans. This week, the Labor Department is expected to report that overall inflation fell to about 3% in June, lowest in two years. Remember, June of last year was the peak. Excluding the volatile consumer core uh, inflation is expected to drop to around 5%, an 18-month low. Okay, great. Now what? The bad news, getting inflation down further from there, according to the Fed's 2% target, will prove difficult if the economy keeps chugging along. And that could keep the Fed keeping monetary policy tight until the labor market weakens. Core inflation has proven stubborn this year, but analysts see two big reasons for improvement, beginning with the Wednesday CPI report. The first reason for optimism comes from a slowdown in rent growth. Housing accounts for 40% of core CPI and almost 20% of uh, the Fed's preferred gauge, that would be the PCE. A boom in household formation had driven up rents sharply in the past two years, but that boom has slowed and the supply of new apartment units has hit a 40-year high. This is important, by the way, just on like tangentially here. Multi-family permits are way higher than single-family permits. In fact, year over year, single-family permits are negative. Multi-family permits are positive. That means we're still expecting even more apartment supply driven by the boom we saw during the pandemic. Household formation is probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of real estate. And tangentially, I think it's just worth taking 30 seconds to understand very quickly that in the pandemic, you could have had a four-person household basically turn into uh, two people staying in the house, one person going into an apartment, and one person going into another apartment or whatever. This all of a sudden means you went from one household to four households. And what you're seeing now is actually somewhat of a convergence again, where maybe one person moves back in with you know mom and dad or whatever, and now all of a sudden you have one person in one unit and three people in another, so you've gone back to two households. So you go from one household to four to two. So, and then at the same time as you get this household formation crush, which is the trend we're on right now, you potentially have 
more building and supply increasing. So supply increasing with household formation slowing, all of that, what does it end up doing? Well, it puts pressure on rents. Rents get pressured down. As rents get pressured down, you continue to drive inflation down to the point where housing could potentially flip to deflation. Okay, so let's keep going with what Nick T says. Uh, all right, so housing costs, great. Housing is this light blue segment right here. We could see it's rolling over. That's fantastic. You see core goods bouncing around 3%, trying to, you know, it obviously went negative there for a brief period of time at the end of 2022, but that was just the good section. Okay, great. So we know housing inflation is expected to, to slow. That's fine. And that gives optimism as well as a second reason for optimism that used car prices are falling. That's true. In fact, you just had the Manheim report came out, uh, boy, I think it was yesterday. And you had the largest decrease in auto prices in somewhat, I think, 16 months, I think it was. It was somewhere like a 4% decline in used autos in just a one-month period, which was remarkable. Uh, one of the largest declines in used prices. That's great. Okay. Uh, then you've got food, uh, or sorry, goods, excluding food and energy, up 2%. Fine. Okay, great. Now, uh, we think that used cars will continue to plummet. Okay, fantastic. Lower used car prices are one reason we expect core to fall. Fantastic. Still expecting another rate hike. Okay, fine. Okay, where's the bad news, Nick T? Where's the bad news? So good news is rents down, used cars down. Air, airfares are also starting to come down. Okay, fantastic. However, what do we think about tight labor and how is that going to affect getting to 2%? So what do we have here? In a high inflation environment, okay, whatever. Let me get to the part. I get negative. Why is it so slow to scroll? Come on here. Housing. Okay, here we go. Okay, without a slowdown in wage growth, this is the argument that they make is bad. So they suggest wage growth was up 0.4% in the last BLS labor report we got on Friday, which annualizes out to 4.8%. And they argue that without a slowdown, wage growth could remain elevated supporting the stronger demand for goods and services that ultimately boost more demand for labor. And if people feel secure in their jobs, then they keep spending, keeping core inflation up. So even though rents might be coming down and used car prices might be coming down, because of wage growth still holding strong, it could take a lot longer to actually get that core inflation down. And maybe Jerome Powell will be wrong and it actually takes until maybe somewhere around 2026 to get core inflation down which the market is not priced in. In fact, if we look at, let's go jump into uh, rate expectations. Let's do that. And let's look at the world interest rate probability. And let's see how far out we could go. I actually think that would be very interesting. Uh, oh, uh, 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 let's see. Oh yeah, sorry folks, by the way, thank you for correcting my math over here. This is three households, not four. Four people, three households, you're right. My bad. Uh, same argument though, right? You're going from, from one to three and, and then down. But that growth down is a potential hit uh, that just isn't expected by markets. Okay, one second, and we're going to get the world interest rate probabilities. Okay. Thank you for that, Angela. Okay, well, it's gonna take a second to load. And we're gonna look at this. So these are some interesting posts by Nick T so far. 
they, they, they are fair risks. I don't know how likely uh, they are, especially if you do end up getting heavy deflationary sets in, in some places like rents and used cars, and you start getting negative reads. That's probably what you need, is you need negative reads to drag the entire index down. But I want to look at what the market is expecting for when we actually get more rapid rate cuts. So I'm going to pull that chart up. And I want to go all the way out to 2025 with it. And we're going to chat about it. Okay, can I get out to, I could get out to December 2024. That's the furthest I can go with it. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, it's still pretty good though. All right, here we go. Let's pull this up. Wands Sharkart. Here it is. Here is the world interest rate probability chart. And this shows where we think we'll actually be with rates by the end of 2024. Now, the good news is this is basically an example of what the market is pricing in. And the market, if you look closely, is already pricing in a slowdown in the pace of rate cuts. I know, it's kind of remarkable to try to look into the future this far, and it's probably all going to be wrong anyway. But at least this is what the market is pricing in now. So the market's pricing in your terminal rate right over here in November. This is November, this is September, and you're pricing in your peak rate in November at roughly about 5.4%, which basically puts us at a slightly elevated chance of getting two hikes, uh, two 25 BP hikes rather than just one. So we get a terminal rate by November. We start getting cuts by March and May of next year. The blue line you can see here inflects down relatively rapidly, but it pauses for a moment uh, and changes directions. Look at where that change of direction is. So here you get your cuts straight down here. It's basically a perfectly straight line right here, right? But look at where that perfectly straight line changes right here behind me. So by the end, of 2024, the market is already pricing in a slowdown in the pace of rates. See that inflection point right there, that, that kink, that bend? That's basically saying higher for longer. It's already being priced in. You actually got another inflection point right here in December, where the pace at which they cut rates is actually relatively slow. So I don't know that it's so scary that, okay, inflation might take a little longer to get down, given that it's kind of the market's looking at that and going, okay, so so what? It's going to take a few years to get it down. Is that that bad? Not necessarily. Remember how long the Fed took to get inflation down post-1981, Paul Volcker. This, this, to me, I think is remarkable, and I think we forget this, but it's so important, especially comparing to Nick T's piece here. There was this phrase that the Federal Reserve used, and they called it uh, opportunistic disinflation. We've talked about it before, but it's worth remembering. It's the argument that the Fed does not need to rush inflation down. Opportunistic inflation is basically patience as long as expectations are low, stable, or declining. So as long as inflation expectations are low, stable, or declining, we can be patient. So if the market is basically saying, sure, rate cuts coming in March, May, of 2024 
and then slower pace of rate cuts by end of 2024 as some levels of inflation stay a bit hot. Uh, that could be your core segments. Uh, who cares? As long as no recession, uh, deep recession, or Paul Volcker, this really doesn't matter. That's roughly what we're looking at here. Now, to some extent, it's going to matter for uh, the very poor. And then, of course, companies with low pricing power. So low pricing power stocks, it, it will affect. So it definitely matter here. Uh, but for your pricing power stocks, it probably won't matter much at all. So I'm not as bearish on this idea that, oh, inflation's not going to fall as quickly as people think. Who cares? As long as we don't get a disastrous economy, we can roughly stabilize where we're heading. Fantastic. Now, no guarantees. I mean, obviously things could break. Uh, Fed could hike too far and we end up falling into recession. Unemployment rises a lot more than expected. But uh, it's certainly not my base case. And this fear that uh, that folks circulate over, oh, but it's going to take a lot longer to get core down. Who cares? That's my thesis, at least. I, I don't really care about it. Anyway, so those are some of my reactions to what Nick T is up to. Uh, hopefully that's insightful. All right, next. So that's Nick T. Okay. Uh, next, let's get some research in here. That's some more research. The next one I want to hit is... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where's my bear piece? Oh yeah, okay, well, we'll we wanna start over here first. Okay. All right, it's been a while since we've talked about this guy. Take another sip over here and then we're gonna talk about Mike Wilson. Uh, Mike Wilson the bear. I'd love to interview. We can have a conversation with, with uh, probably one of the biggest bears on Wall Street right now, which I think would be very insightful. Like, you yeah, have a very respectable conversation with him. Kind of like what we did with um, Gordon Johnson, the Tesla bear. That'd be very interesting. All right. Okay. So, what do we have? Mike Wilson. Well, it's time to review another bear piece by Wall Street's largest and biggest bear, Morgan Stanley, who makes headlines, uh, or my, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, who makes headlines every time he posts. So let's go through Mike Wilson's latest 41-page bear piece. So what do we have here? First, Mike Wilson starts off with, Earnings revisions, breath has improved this year. Calendar EPS forecasts continue to fall and higher rates and lower liquidity suggest PEs are vulnerable unless EPS forecasts rise. In other words, we could see multiple compression. So what does he talk about? Do earnings matter? With virtually all of the equity index performance this year due to multiple expansion, not earnings growth, the market seems to be saying it doesn't care about the near-term earnings recession because the second half of 2023 
and 2024 in total are going to be strong. This is the look through argument, right? This is the argument that, hey, we could look through th this near term pain because earnings will be better in the future. And so what is the market rising on now? Multiples. And this is true. You have seen peg ratios, for example, from Tesla go from one to three. You're, so your multiples have vastly expanded. Peg is price to earnings growth, right? The other reasons multiples may have expanded is due to improving liquidity, a trend that is now reversing course. To some extent, yes. Keep in mind, we continue to hear this argument that, oh no, the liquidity crisis of the Treasury general account being refilled is going to crush the markets. Hasn't happened. As we expected, the reverse repo facility was the buffer, and it continues to be. And there's plenty of money left in the reverse repo facility, still close to $2 trillion. Anyway, while Q2 results are unlikely to solidify a bull or bear earnings case for the second half, we think stocks will need more confirmation of the turn in growth than they have had over the past six months given higher valuations, deteriorating liquidity, and proximity to the second half when consensus expects a recovery. So in other words, what he's saying is, look, if everybody expects a recovery by the second half of 2023 and into 2024, and we get closer to that, and it doesn't start materializing, then all of a sudden those multiples can start looking rich. And you might start seeing a downturn in the stock market. Then again, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson has been looking for a downturn for like a year now. And we had our downturn at the end of 2022. The problem is, it seems like Mike Wilson and his team have been relatively mispositioned for the first half of the year. Now, their argument has been, well, you know, we were always short-term bullish. We're just long-term bearish. And so their argument is, sure, maybe stocks will go up at the beginning of the year, but don't worry, they'll crash big time soon. And so we've kind of regularly been reviewing the Morgan Stanley, Mike Wilson pieces here, seeing, okay, well, what kind of arguments do we have? Right now, the argument seems to be, well, now we're getting closer to, you know, Q3, Q4 earnings, which means you better start pricing in, uh, uh, you know, the reality. And if that reality isn't as juicy as you expected, stocks are going to come down because multiples have gone up. Okay, fine. What else does he say? Has a new cyclical upturn begun? With equity valuations showing resilience recently in the face of higher rates, some are asking whether this is the start of a new cycle. In order to look at that, we look at breadth. We find the path of all three measures since the fall of 2022 price trough to be inconsistent with what we've seen in prior cycles. In a break from historical precedent, equal weight performance is lagging on relative races, blah, blah, blah. Let's look at some more of his particular charts, and they'll give us a little bit more uh, of an explanation uh, uh, for, his, for his summary. So uh, let's go to, I want to go to that particular piece here. Okay, here we go. Consensus now expects Q2 EPS to be the trough uh, for growth. That would be right here. And the goal is that you have this sort of growth and recovery in margins and uh, earnings per share. And this is sort of what the market is looking at. Okay, fantastic. What else do we have? Well, we have, this is the liquidity talk. Let me see here. Let me go forward a little bit. Let's go to right here. Here we go. Okay, 10-year breaking out. So one of the big reasons Mike Wilson gives for earnings likely missing as we get closer to Q3, Q4 is rates. 
real rates on the 10-year, which is your difference between uh, where inflation, headline inflation is, and the 10-year rate is, uh, is sitting and breaking above uh, this sort of trend line that he's drawn here. And he's arguing that as we push above this trend line and as rates potentially continue to trend up, you're going to put more pressure on that those earnings. And if you pressure earnings, then you're going to miss. Your Q3, Q4 is going to be more bearish. And finally, the Morgan Stanley, Mike Wilson bear piece will come true and we'll have a, we'll have a correction in the stock market because there's been too much euphoria. Okay, so rate argument. I mean, the rate argument is not terribly unrealistic. It, 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 it will make the cost of capital much more expensive for businesses. So what do we have here? Equity return uh, compared to the real rate correlation has fallen back into negative territory. This is basically your forward expectation of what you think the stock market is going to provide uh, compared to, to what you could have earned by just investing into treasuries. And uh, when this is negative, it's, it's essentially viewed as bearish. So far, I really generally find his arguments not highly convincing to me, though. Fed front end uh, rate uncertainty is typically a headwind for multiple earnings. Fine. With equity valuations showing resilience in the in, in recently, rather, in the face of higher rates, some are asking whether it's the start of the new cycle. This is where he gets into some more detail on his summary earlier. In order to address this question, we look at the following. We find all three of these measures since the fall of 2022 uh, to be inconsistent with what we've seen in prior cycles. Okay. In other words, this time is different. So what do we have? Here we've got breadth. In prior cycle upturns, equal weight performance typically leads cap weight, market cap weighted performance. And so the argument is, here are all of your prior cycles. 1970, 74, 80, 82, 90, 02, 09, 2022, and 20, well, uh, 2020, rather, and then where we are today. We are where the green highlight is right here. And when you look at the chart, we're like, wait a minute. Why is it that generally equal weight outperforms first? And this time we're not seeing that. When I was looking at this the first time, I thought to myself, well, one of the reasons for this could be that during the pandemic, and I'm not trying to explain like a way that this time is different argument here. Mike Wilson is saying, look, this time shouldn't be different. You know, we're going to crash. This is not the start of recovery yet. That's the argument he's making. He's saying, look, in prior cycles, this, is, this chart is how stocks have recovered. But we have this black line here, which is inconsistent with what we've previously seen. Therefore, it can't be the start of recovery. That's his argument, right? If I were to provide a counter explanation to that, I would make the argument, which I've made for about a year now, that staples are not the place to be. And unfortunately, staples are what prop up uh, the S&P, and they're why you've seen such little breadth. Breadth is just basically a way of saying, hey, why is it that basically 10 stocks are creating 90 plus, 90% 90 plus of the return uh, of the SPY, of the S&P 500? Well, it's probably because those stocks are your pricing power stocks, your Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Tesla, and otherwise. These are your pricing power stocks, the stocks that actually generate earnings compared to your more staples, which people flooded into during this 
a post-stimulative crash because they thought, well, if anybody's going to survive, it's going to be the companies like Coca-Cola because they're going to continue to be able to sell, or it's going to be Costco, or it's going to be McDonald's. And these are the companies that aren't performing as well in the stock market right now. But I personally think that's because everybody flooded into these as a safety play going into 2022, uh, or sorry, going into 2023. And I think that ended up being a mistake. You propped up the valuations for these companies, and that's why you're getting a lead that's different from prior cycles. Who knows? It's always difficult to make the argument that this time is different, but it gives a little bit of a counter argument uh, to Mike Wilson's take here. So then you've got PMIs here. Uh, again, you have uh, Mike Wilson suggesting in order for you to really come out of a bear market and into recovery, you should be seeing PMIs rising, not trending down as they are now. The green line is where we are now. And, and then obviously all of these other lines right here are your prior trends. So in other words, too soon to call for a recovery, he says. Although the reality is, even he argues that the recovery is not supposed to come until Q4 or 2024. So it's quite possible that, you know, you do get this sort of recovery to trend as time continues here. So I think it's probably too early to even use that chart. While our call from, for an earnings recession is playing out, negative year-over-year -year EPS growth, well, in fairness, the earnings recession has been around for a while. Let me just look at chips. Chips have been in an earnings recession since... Q2 of 2022. The problem is, for Mike Wilson, the stock market is going up. And that's because of multiple expansion. He's correct about that. But that multiple expansion, in my opinion, is occurring because we're not getting a Paul Volcker. In other words, things aren't as bad as feared. Anyway, so uh, earnings recession breath has, in fact, improved this year. The improvement in this measure hasn't led to a, a notable increase in forward EPS forecasts, but it likely has made investors feel better in terms of the worst being behind us. This is likely why multiples have expanded. However, at this point, the S&P 500 appears to be pricing in a higher level of earnings revision than what has transpired, further supporting our view that the Q2 earnings season will be more about the guide than usual. Well, this I agree with. I don't actually think Q2 earnings matter. I think what they say about Q3 and 4 matters. So we're going to be diving into all the earnings calls. Certainly in the course member live stream, we'll be ripping apart the earnings calls and trying to understand where are we going. Is Mike Wilson going to be right? Are companies going to tell us bearish things about Q3, Q4? Or are things going to be better than expected? Big question for sure. Totally agree with him. But so far, again, I'm not convinced that some of the things he's showing us here are really as bearish as, as uh, he proposes them to be. Anyway, what do you have here? Current Q2 expectations are for 0% sales growth, but a 7 to 8% EPS decline as stagnant pricing power is met with lagged and elevated costs. Therefore, investor focus will be on second half guidance. At current consensus, second half earnings are expecting a sharp acceleration from Q2, while 2024 sees a return to double digit EPS growth. Now this is where he's right. The markets are expecting a boon in 2024. Are we actually going to get that? And now that we're relatively close to the second half of 23, we need to start seeing some durable guidance. And that's what he argues right here. We need durable guidance to keep the rally going. I think he's right about that. And I think the companies that are going to have durable guidance are going to be your pricing power stocks. And yes, there are going to be companies that have a decline in pricing power. Personally, I actually agree with Mike Wilson that it's a lot of S&P 500 stocks. 
Unfortunately, I disagree with him on which ones. I think your staples are going to continue to see a decline in pricing power. So, uh, impact of credit tightening, consumer corporate demands, cost cutting, AI potential, near-term positive, fine. Bar for Q2 earnings has been lowered, but again, it's all going to be on uh, guidance. So, so far, not finding anything super scary here from Mike Wilson. Uh, here you have S&P 500 Q2 earnings and where you would expect to see some, some pain. The biggest pain would be healthcare materials, energy, financials, uh, whereas consumer discretionary is actually expected to show some growth. Great. What about here? EPS expectation changes. This is your one-year change in consensus Q2 growth. You can see consensus estimates have already come down. You're already expecting, uh, or you've already seen revisions in earnings down 21% for financials, down 21% for tech, down 25% for discretionary. The way this works, by the way, because I know that comes across as confusing, the way that works is like this. Hey, we think Etsy, let's just say, will earn $10 of you know earnings per share in Q2. And this is what you say, let's say, I don't know, March 2022, okay? And then that's for 2023. Then you get to March of 23 and you're like, hey, we actually think earnings will be, say, $7.50. That would be, that basically equals a 25% decline in expectations. The crazy thing is, even though these declines in expectations have occurred, the stock market hasn't necessarily sold down. And that's because PEs go up. Well, why do PEs go up? Tina, PEs go up when people think there's no alternative. If I want to make the most money possible, I'm just going to invest in stocks and I'll just wait for the earnings to come around. That is what's very frustrating to bears because they're like, oh, but earnings are going down. Why are stocks going up? Well, they're going up because we're not getting rug pulled. <laughs> okay. What else? What else do you have? All right. Earnings revision breadth. Uh, you've got technology hardware changed since May. Obviously, you've had an increase in, in tech hardware and SaaS thanks to AI. Your uh, expectations for autos has also skyrocketed. 33% increase in earnings expectations here. Most sectors have had negative revisions. Insurance, 4.8. Banks, 2.8. Six energy 8.7. This is actually where I think there's an opportunity. Some of the solar energy, uh, food and staples. Yeah, look at that. Staples have really seen their earnings come down or expectations come down. And I think that's why you've seen some of the movement in stocks for staples relative to others. Tech discretionary expected to lead in 2024 sales. I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise that a tech and consumer discretionary is expected to lead for 2024 as, as the market hopefully rebounds. And hopefully we don't see a big nasty recession. And this is where Mike Wilson is putting his money. He is actually overweight what I think will be the weakest. Staples, utilities, healthcare. So we'll see how that plays out. And he is bearish on discretionary and tech, which is where I'm bullish. So I'm here and sat here, but that hasn't changed much. So really, when we look at Mike Wilson's bear piece here, I'm not convinced that this is really scary. I mean, 
if I were to summarize Mike Wilson's bear piece in this, I would summarize it like this. In summary, one, uh, you better be careful because we're getting closer to 2H earnings and 2024. And the bulls said those would be good, so they better be good. That's kind of the bear argument I got out of this. And then the second one is, yo, rates be up and cost of capital will be up. Okay. And then the other thing we got is, yo, it's not fair. Stocks are going up. It's, uh, it's not supported by earnings. In fact, earnings going down, but y'all keep buying stocks. Multiples be going up. I'm sad as a bear. That's kind of your short summary of the Mike Wilson bear piece here. That's the way I would put it. And then I would also say I'm going to use charts prematurely to say I'm right. Which is kind of like this PMI chart, right? Maybe he's right, but I think using manufacturing PMIs as a leading indicator in the cycle. Uh, and I understand he's aligning them by time, but I think give it a few more months and, and we start seeing PMIs come up again, much like historical trend. Uh, as far as breadth, I actually think this is just the new economy we're facing. So you're going to see more pricing power on the consolidated larger companies uh, for software and technology than just staples. I don't know. My take on my uh, Morgan Stanley's uh, um, bear piece here. Okay, cool. What else? Let's listen up over here. Let's see what they got. Oh, why can't I hear them? Uh-oh. That doesn't make sense. I can't. That's not working anymore. What happened? Oh. My thingy broke. <laughs> That's not good. Let me try a different channel. Well, that's quite bizarre. All right. Well, I'll have to fix that. <laughs> Whatever. So, uh, okay, good. Well, I think that does it for today's Meet Kevin Report. Let's jump on over. I'm going to post the link to the Course Member Live, make some more coffee, and uh, appreciate y'all being here. I'll go ahead and fix this. <laughs> yeah, rugged, exactly. And, uh, yeah, thanks for joining. We'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.